When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Benjamin Hall, and I'm Searching for Heroes. Thank you for joining us today, everybody. Uh, We've got a remarkable guest today, somebody called Colin Campbell. Uh, He's written a book called Finding the Words, and in that he discusses his own voyage through grief. About five years ago, Colin and his wife were driving their car to the Joshua Tree, and they were T-boned by a drunk and high driver uh, going 90 miles an hour. Ruby and Hart were killed in the back seat. And in his book, Colin lays out his grief, how he interacted with the community, and what helped him to move forward and what helped him to explain to others how he was feeling. Um, It's a pleasure having him on. It's a very difficult experience he's been through but he's incredibly open about talking about it so thank you for joining us this week and here's colin everything that you write about um i feel so much of it and i I don't know if you know but i you know i was in an attack in ukraine and you know i lost our colleagues and i was injured and um the last I, i think i'm still in this middle section where the way people react to me when they see me with prosthetics and the way i react to them you know, mm. I'm I'm still trying to figure out to make them feel comfortable. And I know we went through very different things, you and I, totally different. But yeah. people still react with you to you yeah. in a different way. And I, I find yeah. that so interesting. Yeah, I, I've I've come to a place where I feel like um I'm I'm less worried about taking care of other people. N- not in a mean way, but in like a what am I what am I shielding them from? Reality? Like bad things happen to good people and it's okay. They can take it. That's my, that's my attitude because I, I talked to a lot of other grieving parents and, and they worry like, Oh, you know, they, I don't want to mention that I have dead kids because how upsetting would it be for them? I kind of feel like it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. Um, well, I guess we'll start off talking about your book and, um, okay. Terrific. Um, in, the title itself, I think, lays the toe for it, finding the words. And this is the real journey that you went through, not only finding your words, but helping other people find their words in speaking to you. So it worked in both directions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that it's hard, uh, especially in early grief, to find the words to express what we need. We don't even know what we need in early grief, right? It's just so uh it's so traumatic it's so chaotic that it, it takes a while to figure out what do i need yeah when you wrote the book were you still in a had you figured out at that point how to speak to other people and how to oh. come to terms with your own grief is there ever an answer to it or are you constantly evolving yeah yeah i i think uh, as i wrote the book I, it was definitely evolving um, I, I started writing it pretty soon after the crash. It hadn't even been a full year before I started the process of writing it. 
Um, and, uh, and definitely the act of writing it helped me find the words, as you said, um, to, to literally process what was going on with me uh, and where I, where I was and how I felt about it. Yeah. Uh, so so yeah. it definitely has a raw quality to it. Yeah. I, when I wrote my own book, I, was, I wrote it in hospital and I was thinking all the time mm. that it became part of the therapy for me because it was trying to figure out how I was feeling, how different <laughs> life would become. And, mm. um, and writing that down, I think, got me through, through quite a lot of the, you know, the hurdles as well. Um, yeah. What were you most surprised at? Um, you know, soon after your, your, your children died, in the way people reacted to you? Uh, well, well, the most surprising thing for me, just to begin with, was, was the fear, was how scared I was. I, and, and I still am scared at the thought of living without Ruby and Hart, my children. Um, so that, that was the most surprising, I think, to me, um, just how terrified I was to even come home to my own home without them in it. Um, in terms of surprising for in terms of people responding to me, I think it was the idea that I was suddenly scary to them, that they were scared to say anything because they were so scared to hurt me more, hmm. uh, that they wouldn't even say hello. They wouldn't say hi, because it seemed like maybe I might be like, hi, how dare you say hi to me? <laughs> you know, my children were just killed. Um, and so that, yeah, I guess my fear and then their fear were the most surprising to me. And so I suppose you, you must have felt that you had two options. You write about this. One is to just to cut yourself off from everyone, to go through your own grief by yourself. And then what, mm. you have just, what, what you write about is how, in fact, sharing it with others was great help to you as well. Yeah. And it really felt like that actually was grieving, that, that, that process of talking about Ruby and Hart and talking about my feelings, my grief, that was literally how I was grieving. And I felt kind of stuck when it was just me. It was just me ruminating. Um, so yeah, that was really a, an eye opener for me. The idea that, that we mourn in community. Mm. Um, you've also talked about how you found yourself soon after their deaths, looking away from their pictures. Mm. Um, but that was the moment that you decided that to remember them, you needed to look at them. You needed to feel everything. You couldn't hide from it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was like an epiphany for me, a real, real realization that it was early in the morning. I, I came down the stairs and I had these big uh, blown up images of Ruby and Hart. Uh, and I taped them to the wall of my living room. So the whole living room became like this shrine. And there were eight two by three foot photographs of Ruby and Hart's faces and I wanted them. I wanted them there. I wanted to be surrounded by them. But then one morning, I, I, it, was, it was, quote, unquote, too painful. It hurt too much to look at them. And I looked away. And in that moment, I was like, what am I doing? How, how can I look away from my own children's faces? Because I'm so scared of the pain that it's going to cause me. Uh, and that's when I really thought, like, yeah, I, I don't want to ever look away from my kids' photos. To this day, it's hard. It's hard for me to look at their photos, um, to be honest. Um, but I, I always, I always do it, uh, and I, in the end, it's always worth it. Yeah. I love looking at their photos. <laughs> yeah. C could you tell us a little bit about about each of them? 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm looking at pictures of them right now, actually. So I'm looking at a photo of Hart when he was very young, uh, unbelievably beautiful little boy um, and a beautiful young man he grew into. He was a very, very handsome guy uh, and such a little devilish grin on his face. Um, he was like this amazing clown. Uh, he was an entertainer. He was going to be an actor uh, for sure. He loved it. He loved putting on personas and playing characters and making everybody laugh. He was literally the life of the party. He was a real homebody too, though. So he'd always say like, oh, I don't want to go to the party. I want to stay home. And then he'd be the, the one that had the most fun <laughs> every time, wherever we went, he would always have the most fun. Uh, he was like a magnet to other kids. And Ruby was this extraordinary artist. She was an amazing painter, graphic designer. Um, she even did her own um, animated short film. Uh, so she died when she was 17 and he was 14. Um, but he was, she was going to go off to, to be a, an artist. She got a, a merit scholarship to the Chicago Institute for the Art or Art Institute. I forget how you say the name of that institute in Chicago. But um, uh, to study over the summer of her junior year in high school. And so I think she was going to go there for college. Uh, but she was really a warrior for social justice. Um, she was she was gay and very proud and out and a protector of other people who were being bullied, which is really beautiful. Do you now try to carry that on? Are you involved in projects that would that she would be proud of you doing so? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I am. I am. And I do. So we started a, a foundation, the Ruby and Heart Foundation, and that gives money to authors to go into schools, underserved schools and give away free books. Uh, and have authors visit schools because both Ruby and Hart love books. Yeah. Yeah. Could you try and explain, I suppose, to our listeners what your grief felt like at first, like how it affected you? Yeah. You know, the, it, at first it was a lot of disbelief and this disbelief still continues to this day. It's, it, it's still hard for me to believe that they're gone. Uh, because they were here and laughing and having a wonderful time. And then the next moment they're gone. And it's, that's hard. Do you feel that sort of every morning when, when you wake up, do you sort of remember that for the first time in, in the day? Yeah, I do. I, in the, in the early years, it would literally be my first thought waking up and my last thought going to bed. Um, and now it's not always the first thought when I wake up, but it's definitely every morning <laughs> and every night. Absolutely. Um, and that's, uh, that's, I think, part of the process of, of accepting it, that it's real, that this life that I'm living is real. Um, it's not the life I would have chosen for myself, but it's what I've got. And I want to make the most of it in honor of Ruby and Hart. Yeah, make them and proud. I think, and I think your book does that, absolutely. Uh -huh. And I know how proud they would be of it. Um, people would come up to you and say uh, at the beginning, there are no words to describe this. And that, that is something mm. that you, you look at quite often in your book. Can you talk about <laughs> how you feel about that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. I will. Um, it, it, was, it was astounding how many times I heard that phrase, there are no words. It, it was bizarre. I, I, that was really surprising. That was one of the most surprising things, I guess, in early grief, was that everybody knew to say that. It was like, how, who told you to say that? <laughs> everybody else is saying that. What a strange thing. And at first I thought, when I first heard it the first, you know, 10 or 20 times, I was like, yeah, right. There are no words. This is insane. 
by the hundredth time, I was like, hold on a second. <laughs> Wait a minute. Maybe there are words. Let, let, let's think about this for a minute. And I, I, I started to feel like that was sort of indicative of how our whole society deals with grief. We don't talk about it. We say it's too big. I, there's no words for it. I can't talk about it. Let's leave it at that. And very often that phrase, there are no words, would be a conversation killer because it's literally saying we can't talk about this, right? There are no words. So, of course, it's coming from a place of love. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not foolish. I understand people are trying to express love and support for me, and, and, I, and I appreciated that. I don't, I don't want to imply that I'm rude or something. <laughs> um, I get where it's coming from, but ultimately, I found it unsatisfactory, and I really wanted to have the words to talk about grief. Hence my book, Finding the Words, right? Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I began to feel like let's do better than that. Um, it's okay if you say there are no words and then you, then you find, then you keep talking to me. That's great. But if you say there are no words and then that's it, that that's not good enough. I, I want us to find the words to talk. I just wonder, and you are a director, you know, plays films. And wh- what do you think, where does that come from? People's inability, many people's inability to talk like that. Isn't it in culture? Hasn't it always mm-hmm. been there? If you look back at Shakespeare, for example, you're that far people, would talk we're open about those things and i just has that changed has culture changed why are people finding it difficult to talk now yeah i think it has changed i think that over time our relationship to death has changed because of you know the hospitals have have taken a lot of death out of the public view people become sick and they go they go away and uh I think it's wonderful that we have hospitals. Don't get me wrong, um, but uh, but I feel like that that impulse now is a is a very modern impulse to not want to talk about our feelings about death and loss and grief. You know, in the olden days, people would 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 wear uh, black right for a year or for the rest of their lives, and so you know, publicly declaring, "I'm in grief," "I'm in mourning," and now there's a I think a desire to to hide that or to tell people to get over it, stop grieving, get over it. I, I think there's something about age as well that plays a role in it because, you know, if we, I have prosthetic legs, but I go to pick up my children at school and uh, every kid surrounds you and talks and asks and wants to know more, but none mm-hmm. of the parents will do that. And yeah. I find that fascinating. And I'm not sure at what age they stopped doing mm-hmm. that, but um, what are you, you must've had different experiences talking both to children Versus to adults. Yeah. Well, well, that's interesting you said that because that's uh, I really learned a very valuable lesson very early on because one of Hart's friends was the first person who reached out to us. It was like day two or something after the crash, but reached out to us. And I, and I was like, oh, this is what I want to receive. because I didn't even know what, what I wanted to hear. Right. I was hearing there are no words. And OK. But then I got an email from this from this young boy who just said, like, I love Hart so much. He was so amazing. And the email, he shared a story about Hart, and then he said he'll miss him and think about him for the rest of his life. And it's like, oh, right. <laughs> That's what we want to hear. <laughs> we want to hear stories about the people we lost and how much they're still thought about and loved. And that was really true across the board. No kid ever said there are no words to me. It was only adults. <laughs> yeah. So to your point about what age it is, I don't know, but it's older than than 17 <laughs> because that's uh-huh. Ruby's friend's age. So at some uh-huh. point 
above age 17 is when we, we all learn to say there are no words. Um, but all the, no kids ever said that to me. And they all, they all engaged in, in my grief with me by just yeah. asking questions, just like you said. And I suppose that's so, that's so important in your book. It's about people engaging in your grief with you. Is hmm. that is that people who want to go through it with you, who you think should be sharing your grief? It, does it go that far, or do you just want them to understand your grief? Yeah, I, well, I I'd love for us to have a be able to have a conversation and talk about it, so it's not like a white elephant in the room, hmm. um, because that's when it becomes really awkward. That's when it becomes like we're having a fake conversation because we're not really talking about the real thing that's happening in the room. And, and I liken it to like, like imagine if I had a spear, right? And, and, and someone threw a spear into my chest and it's sticking out and there's blood spattering all over the place. And imagine I went to a party and nobody asked me about the spear and the blood. <laughs> like yeah. that would be bizarre, right? And yet, especially in early acute grief, it's like having a spear into your, in, in your heart. You're bleeding all over. And it feels so strange to have nobody talk about it. I imagine that was similar with you and 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 your and your foot. Like it'd be weird if nobody mentioned it, right? Oh, and and sometimes people don't want to look at it either. My 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 mm. prosthetics, and you sort yeah. of see them looking upwards and talking about something else. And so I have a line where I always say something to them. I will always make say a line early on about them, and as soon as you do. You see them lift. You see it's so much easier for them to talk about it. But sometimes you just right. need to encourage them a little bit um, mm-hmm. because others, you know, don't don't really know how to. Um, yeah. Was it different between people you knew very well versus people you didn't know that? Like, were, were close friends? Did you find they talked more openly with you, or would even some of them find it hard? Some did. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think some just know how to be more at ease with it. And some people didn't, even close friends didn't know. But I developed this, I call it my grief spiel, which is basically I I would tell them um, one-on-one, I'd say, here's the deal. Like, I need to talk about Ruby and Heart. I need to talk about my grief. We can talk about something else for like five minutes, but then we got to circle back to my grief and please say Ruby and Heart's names. And it's okay, you you can't upset me by talking about crashes or children or your own children, because I'm already upset. <laughs> You're not going to make me more upset. Um, don't worry about it. And uh, and that was really helpful to them. I, I could see they were like palpably relieved, like, oh, oh, thank goodness. Thank you for telling me that. Uh, to your point about like, just talking, let's talk about it. And then we can talk about something else. Like it doesn't have to all be about my grief. Certainly not now. Um, but it helps our relationship if we can acknowledge it, you know? Yeah. More of our conversation right after this. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Did you go through different phases of grief? So at one point, did you want everybody to be feeling your grief and sharing? And, and then did you ever become, did you ever start to feel you didn't want it to weigh on other people? And so you did you ever want to keep it to yourself? No. <laughs> I did it in the sense of like, 
I don't think it's weighing on people when we talk about it because hopefully, or, or actually invari invariably, it would go to happy places, talking about Ruby and Hart and our memories. So it wasn't like a heavy burdensome thing. It was, it was, it was kind of light quickly. It was like, let's talk, let's say a, a hilarious story about Ruby and Hart, you know, and we can cry a little, but then also we can laugh. Uh, yeah. So I, it didn't feel, I don't think, I think my friends and family were, were and are still grieving Ruby and Hart. And so they're in pain. Right. And so by us being able to talk about, that I think it lightens both of our lives. I suppose you talk about telling stories about them and how sort of maybe you can feel joy from doing that. But I wonder what the relationship mm. is between grief and joy. And mm. do you feel bad fe sometimes feeling happy about things? Do you think I'm I'm grieving? I should in fact I shouldn't be happy right now. <laughs> it's, a, yes. it's a funny relationship. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I never feel bad about feeling joy thinking about Ruby and Hart. Yes. But I do feel guilty when I'm enjoying my life in other areas, right? Um, that's hard. Uh, and I, I've, I think about it a lot and I write about it, guilt. And um, I, I, I've come to believe it's just, it's part of grief. It's like you have to learn to live with it and try and be kind to yourself. Uh, you know, Ruby and Hart, would love for me to be, you know, enjoying my ice cream cone or singing a song happily um, because they love me. <laughs> so uh, it doesn't, it doesn't help to punish myself, even though those punishing thoughts happen all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. How do you feel sort of now at the moment? Um, do you, you talk about your children a lot. You do many interviews, of course. Yeah. Do you ever think that you come out the other side of grief? Do you think that there is a point at which you start morphing or looking forward I, I don't know how that over time that changes yeah i i don't know completely either um we're coming up on the fifth anniversary of the crash uh in a few months so uh um anniversaries are still hard birthdays are still hard holidays are hard um uh, but a lot of days i i feel pretty good um, I feel pretty happy um, and I'm able to find joy and feel joy. Um, I think that there'll always be, I'm assuming there'll always be aching in my heart for Ruby and Hart. You know, even 30 years from now, I, I think I'll, I'll be aching and missing them. But I think also by allowing myself to think about them and talk about them so much, um, I, I think that I'm able to be present in this life uh, and enjoy this life as as much as I can. Yeah, I know that um, the Jewish community helped you a lot get through this, mm. but it, it's interesting because you you grew up as an atheist, the wasp yeah. atheist, and then you married a Jewish woman. But mm. and when the crash happened, you weren't practicing as a Jew, is that right? Uh, but you really <laughs> moved into it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was an I was an active member of our temple. Um, and, and Hart and Ruby were bar and bat mitzvahed, um, but I'm still an atheist. I'm, I'm not Jewish. Uh, so I, I describe myself as Jewish adjacent. <laughs> um, so uh, so we, we did all the holidays uh, and we, you know, we celebrate Shabbat and light candles. Um, 
but but it was more me was I was like a, you know an ally um, accompanying my wife and kids on this Jewish path. I valued the the sermons of my rabbi um, Sharon Brous. That's why we chose the temple we chose um, because I, I find her sermons so inspirational. Um, and then when Ruby and Hart were killed, that community really stepped up um, and and helped us through our grief. And then the Jewish traditions opened my eyes to what grieving is. You know, part of the reason why I understood how valuable it was to grieve in community was because that was what I got from the Jewish traditions. So, so we sat Shiva um, for the first seven nights after the funeral, people come to our house and, and, and they sit with you. And, and our, our rabbi, Sharon Browse, she turned to us and said, do you want to talk to, to anyone? Do you want to say anything to these people? And, and Gail and I found that we did. We wanted to talk about Ruby and Hart and our grief. And then they wanted to talk about Ruby and Hart too. And so it was like, wow, this is amazing. This is what it means to grieve in community. Do you think that there is more? I mean, that's a really interesting community that, that do that. I mean, I'm a Catholic and we don't, we don't sort of think of death in that same way. I don't think we come together in the same way that Judaism does. And I, mm-hmm. I think it seems like a really strong part of the community to do so. And um, I, I don't know. I mean, if, yeah. I wonder yeah, I, the difference. I, I think that a lot of uh, the traditions that, that just say that, you know, you, you mourn for one day and then, and there's no more structure after that. Obviously, uh, you know, the Catholic tradition, you, they assume you're going to mourn for more than one day, right? Yes. But, but they only have that one day built in the, you know, the funeral and the wake. And like, I, I think it's wonderful to acknowledge that, um, that, that it takes a lot more time <laughs> and, and give, give people in grief more support, especially in the beginning. Um, the other beautiful thing about the Jewish tradition of, of grieving is that there's a, there's a mourner's prayer, the mourner's Kaddish, and you can, you're, you have to, you have to say it, right. But you're only allowed to say it unless there are nine other people with you. Isn't that amazing? You have to be in community when you say this prayer, but you have to say the prayer. <laughs> and so it's such a beautiful acknowledgement, um, that, that grief should be shared and not not something that's tucked away in a corner and yeah. you should have support. You should have people around you as you're, as you're saying the mourner's prayer and, and weeping. Yeah, I suppose if you're not, if you weren't religious, would grief groups help in the same way? Like, did you find other avenues outside no. Judaism that helped you? Yeah. Yeah. And again, I'm not religious. I'm still an atheist, but, um, but I'm also a member of, of our, of our um, synagogue. Absolutely. And yes, I went to a, a lot of grief groups, um, and they were extremely helpful to me. Uh, I think that's very valuable because it's extra helpful to talk to people who are in the same boat as you are. So I went to Compassionate Friends uh, a number of times. And Compassionate Friends is for grieving parents, grandparents, and siblings. Uh, it's a national organization. It's got um, meetings all over the country in every city. And, um, and that was really helpful. And I went to Our House, which is a a grief place out here in Los Angeles. And we were in a grief group with people who had lost adult children. Uh, and all of us had lost our children suddenly. So we had a lot in common, you know, there were different, different deaths, but, um, and we also lost our children 
uh, in a similar time frame. So we were in a similar place on our grief journey in our house. And that was a really amazing model. We stayed together for two years uh, and remained friends to this day. That was very powerful. Did you find that um, sort of everyone that you spoke to in that group had very different ways of dealing with it? Or did you see real similarities? I, I Both. I, I saw... Uh, people had different ways of dealing with it, but, but there were so many commonalities. And, and the strongest one was that people really wanted to talk about their grief and their loved one to other people. And a lot of people struggled with the fact that their friends and family were reluctant to talk to them. Uh, and that's partly, again, why I was inspired to write my book. Um, because it's so easy, I, I think it's so easy uh, to turn bitter and be isolated in grief because that's sort of almost a natural inclination. Like in early grief, you, you feel like you want to be left alone. Like, leave me alone. I, 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 you know, I, I'm being overwhelmed right now. And then you're, I think your friends think to themselves, oh, they want to be left alone forever. <laughs> I guess I'll just back off, right? And I don't really want to talk to them anyway because I'm kind of scared. Did some and then of your I, friends do that? Did they, some of your friends just cut off and, and move away? Well, they didn't really. Um, I could feel it happening, but then I, but then I, I really reached out and shared my grief needs with them, um, and so uh, that was really helpful to me. Yeah, I was, advice, I was very aggressive. <laughs> but that's what I was going to say. Is your advice then to be? You have to be proactive. You know, if you mm. don't help guide other people, uh, right. you may well lose them because maybe they don't know how to. They don't know how to cope with it either. Yeah, I think absolutely. That's that's a real thrust of my book is that, look, we, we have to educate our community about our own grief needs. Uh, and because they're individual, what, what do you need in your grief is different from what I needed, right? And it changes day to day. And I think it's hard, but we I think it really helps us if we are advocating for ourselves, if we are teaching people what we need because they don't know. And I certainly didn't know. So the thing that really helped me be compassionate to my friends and families, because I was a bad friend in grief before this, I didn't know what to say. I would definitely back away from, from other people's pain and grief. I was scared for sure. So I have tremendous empathy for people who don't know what to say to me because I wouldn't know what to say to me either. Yeah. So, I mean, I, it's, there are so many things in your book, but if you had to bubble it down, you had to give advice to someone who, well, for both sides. First of all, for mm. someone who has gone through the loss of, you know, of that scale, uh, and then for the yeah. person who knows someone who's gone through that loss, what what would you, how would you advise them? Yeah, well, if I had to boil it down, I would say lean into the discomfort because it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to tell your friends what you need in grief. It's uncomfortable to talk about grief. It's uncomfortable to acknowledge mortality and loss. Um, but that's in the short run. I think in the short run, it's uncomfortable. And in the long run, it's, it's so much better. It's so much more full life for everybody um, because we're all gonna lose our loved ones, <laughs> right? That's the human condition. And we are, but I mean, but children is, I suppose, different to losing mm. parents or even perhaps siblings. I mean, I'd say yeah. that is very different. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, it's, it sure is extra awful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you ever, 
I sometimes I think back to the the attack itself and when I was lying there and I was injured and I find it gives me some strength that puts things in perspective and if I'm struggling you know at the moment um then I go back to there and I, I feel good I feel pretty strong again but do you do you mm. ever go back do you ever try and remember that day or how it felt does it does it give you anything well um it definitely does not give me strength <laughs> uh I do not go there. I do not go there for any strength gaining. I gain strength from thinking about the the love we created, me, my wife, and Ruby and Hart. Um, that gives me strength. Uh, thinking about how how powerful we were as a foursome, as a family, so much love we had, uh, and still have. Um, that helps me. I do go back to the. I went back to the crash very early on it was almost like the next day uh, and i wrote down every memory i had of it um the whole day leading up to the crash and the crash itself and then after the crash because i i i wanted to have it written down so i wouldn't be stuck there i wouldn't like ruminate and think over and over again and of course i still do <laughs> every time i get behind the wheel of the car every time i you know i'm driving i especially at night um i think about the crash um but I don't like dwelling there because it's a pretty dark place. It's yeah. pretty uh, full of despair. So I try to allow myself to think about it and then allow myself to let it go as, as easily as I can. Um, yeah. Yep. You're listening to Searching for Heroes with Benjamin Hall. We'll be right back. What do you think of the, do you have any thoughts of the killer and, and how you feel yeah. about him? You know, she was a uh, she was charged with um, with two counts of second degree murder, um, but uh, then through a plea deal, uh, it was it was whatever the next step down is. I forget what it is now. Um, aggravated uh, vehicular manslaughter under intoxication, something like that. <laughs> I don't know. Um, she was just uh, sentenced to fourteen years and eight months in prison. I, I have a complicated feelings about her. Um, I try not to think about her too much. I think that's another thing that another place that's dark for me that doesn't feel good. You know, I, I don't know. I have a complicated relationship to our justice system and, and prisons as well. Um, I don't know how rehabilitating they are, um, but hopefully I have hopes. I hope that her life turns around. Um, you know, she was a repeat DUI offender. So, um, she'd had her, her license revoked. Um, and, and she was, she had a warrant out for her arrest at the time of the crash because she was violating her probation of a previous DUI. So it's not like this is a first time offense for her. Um, so that's hard, right. Um, to think about that, <laughs> but I, I hope that she turns her life around and, and, helps other people and saves lives. That's what I'm hoping. Yeah. Would you say you are a different person today? Like in what ways it, it, it this changed you and like how different you are to how you were before? Yeah. I think I'm, I'm, I'm not scared of other people's pain in the way that I was. Um, I, I feel I have a lot more empathy. I wasn't like a, an unempathetic person to begin with. I was, I was a nice guy for sure. <laughs> um, but I didn't have the under steep understanding of, of this level of pain. Um, and, uh, and now I, I know what it feels like to be in pain 
um, deeply in pain for years. <laughs> so I think I, I'm more empathetic. Yeah. How do you feel about sort of public displays of grief? I mean, did, did you mm. find that that happened often? Were you crying, for example? Um, yeah, I, some... I, I cry. Uh, I, I, I cried a lot uh, every day for the first year or two and every other day from then on in i don't know i don't really keep track of it but <laughs> often i cry but i don't cry in public that often um but i kind of wish i did i think i'm still a little uncomfortable with that as a guy maybe um but i do now and again um yeah yeah i've, I've wept in airports and <laughs> movie theaters and um but uh but yeah it's still a little uncomfortable with it so mostly i i weep alone you you seem to have developed a, a strength though and i keep thinking this i mean that you mm -hmm. seem strong and i wondered if you were, mm -hmm. you were like that before um and uh, if that's something you've learned i guess i must have been strong before but not in the same way maybe um uh so you know, I, I think I think crying in public is strong. <laughs> I think that's a strength. Uh, I wish I was stronger, even, but um, in that regard. Um, but um, yeah, I, I I do feel strong. I do feel emotionally strong. I'm not sure. I think it comes from Ruby and Heart, honestly. Has your view of the world and how good and bad are balanced? Has has that changed? Mm. <laughs> yeah. I guess my eyes are open to, to how difficult life can be. I think I lived a pretty charmed life before the crash. Things came pretty easily and I had a pretty great life and I was, I was happy. Um, uh, I love Ruby and Hart and my wife. So that's really nice. Uh, very lucky. And now I have a different relationship to luck. Uh, I don't believe it anymore. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't even like saying like fingers crossed or <laughs> yeah. I don't like that. If someone was reading your book, what is the one message mm. that you would like to convey to them that, that you'd like them to pick up? Oh, well, um, I think another message that I, I really love is the idea of choosing love. Um, that it's painful, uh, but I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. So I, I'm in immense pain having lost Ruby and Heart, but if I, I would do it all over again, I wouldn't not want to have Ruby and Heart. I would, you know what I mean? Um, and so my wife and I, we, we are currently um, fostering to adopt two, two teenagers. Um, and, and it's difficult, you know, opening our hearts um, and difficult for them to open their hearts because they've been through an immense amount of trauma, right? Anybody in the foster system is, endured incredible trauma and from an early age, um, which is you know, heartbreaking, but, um, but, and it's also scary. It's a scary process um, emotionally, you know. You must be in a better place to be able to talk with the foster children. I mean, you must have now learned. And so that you must find yeah. that well, you must be not feel bad about going up and speaking very openly one-to-one -one that. That must be a real positive. Yeah. I think that, I think it does help. I think it helps that, 
and, and and we talk about our grief um, to them. Um, and yeah, we're very open about trauma and loss. And it, it does, I think it does help to be able to say that I, I can talk about trauma and I'm comfortable with that. Um, do you, do you find that to be true of you too? Um, yes, uh, no, but I, I'm still going through phases, I suppose. And, uh, there are times when I really want to talk about it. And when I was in hospital, I decided that if ever I was having a, something was really difficult or tricky, or I, I, I missed Pierre, uh, you know, who passed away, or mm. I didn't know how the world would look at me. I would tell the first person I saw the first person who walked in the door. I, I made a pact with myself to just say it to them. And boy, I never did that before. <laughs> I kept everything inside and it was, mm. it helped so much. And you just say it, say it to somebody, say, Hey, this is tricky right now. I'm finding it difficult. And I found it lifted a lot of weight. So I, I tried, that's something I never did before. Nice. That's something I continue trying to do now uh, whenever things feel, feel tricky. So um, yeah, that's, I learned in that sense. Yeah. 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 Uh, Colin, I want to say thank you so much for joining me today. I really oh. appreciate your time and um yeah. Your book, I think, sends amazing messages to people who are going through something difficult and who are also for people who know someone going through something difficult. So I hope everyone mm. picks it up and reads it because we need more of that in community. We really do. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Not at all. Take care, Colin. You too. Well, I think it was really interesting speaking to Colin right there. And I think that um, well, we share many things in common, but of course, we... The, the the tragedy we both went through are incredibly different. Uh, you know, I, I, I feel that I, I was injured, but I'm, I'm up, I'm walking, I can see a path forward. And I have to say that I think that the death of one's children, that is something that I think, obviously, as Colin said, that stays with you forever. And so I think grief there is different to perhaps any others. But the way in which he learned to interact with people and the way people interacted with him in that, I find a lot of similarities to, to my experience. Um, the amount of people I've spoken to who don't know how to talk to you, they are afraid of upsetting you. Um, he has felt the same. And, and I think both of us have done the same, which is that we end up having to talk to people. We have to tell them not to be afraid. We have to guide them. And you just have to hope that all of community, one's community, can do that, can lead to that. But, but someone's relationship with grief, I think, is very personal as well. And I think Colin was really open with us about how personal it was to him and how he's still feeling it, but that it changes in many ways. But um, I think more than anything else, the message, and if I was going to connect it to our other podcasts, it is if things are feeling really difficult, don't give up. Don't cut yourself off. As hard as it might be, reach out to the community, be open about how you're feeling, and that will help you get forward. And I think Colin described that. That's what got him through. And I think that helped me get through as well. So, again, if you're feeling something difficult, go and tell someone. Go and talk to someone. Or if you know someone who's going through something dif difficult, go and talk to them. Just send them a message. Go and speak to them because it helps. And, again, I think community is something that will get us through almost anything. So thank you very much for listening. I really appreciate it. And we'll... Speak to you next week. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcasts Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app.
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.